0: Section 0 of A Book of Scoundrels This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Lewin, Brood, Staffordshire, England. A Book of Scoundrels by Charles Wibley Section 0 Introduction there are other manifestations of greatness than to relieve suffering or to wreck an empire. Julius Caesar and John Howard are not the only heroes who smiled upon the world. In the supreme adaptation of means to an end there is a constant nobility, for neither ambition nor virtue is the essential of a perfect action. How shall you contemplate with indifference the career of an artist whom genius or good guidance has compelled to exercise his peculiar skill, to indulge his finer aptitudes? A masterly theft rises in its claim to respect high above the reprobation of the moralist the scoundrel when once justice is quit of him has a right to be appraised by his actions not by their effect and he dies secure in the knowledge that he is commonly more distinguished if he be less loved than his virtuous contemporaries while murder is well-nigh as old as life property in the pocket invented theft late born among the arts it was not until avarice had devised many a cunning trick for the protection of wealth until civilization had multiplied the forms of portable property that thieving became a liberal and an elegant profession. True in pastoral society, the lawless man was eager to lift cattle to break down the barrier between robbery and warfare, but the contrast is as sharp between the savagery of the ancient lever and the polished performance of Captain Hind as between the daub of the pavement. And the perfection of Velasquez. So long as the Gothic spirit governed Europe, expressing itself in useless ornament and wanton brutality, the more delicate crafts had no hope of exercise. Even the adventurer upon the road threatened his victim with a bludgeon. Nor was it until the breath of the Renaissance had vivified the world that a gentleman and an artist could face the traveller with a courteous demand for his purse but the age which witnessed the enterprise of drake and the triumph of shakespeare knew also the prowess of the highwayman and the dexterity of the cut-purse though the art displayed all the freshness and curiosity of the primitives still it was art with Razzi, who demanded a scene from hamlet of a rifled player and who could not rob a cambridge scholar without bidding him deliver an oration in a wood theft was already better than a vulgar extortion Moll Cutpurse, whose intelligence and audacity were never bettered, was among the bravest of the Elizabethans. Her temperament was as large and as reckless as Ben Jonson's own. Neither her tongue nor her courage knew the curb of modesty, and she was the first to reduce her craft to a set of wise and imperious rules. She it was who discovered the secret of discipline and who insisted that every member of her gang should undertake no other enterprise than that for which nature had framed him thus she made easy the path for that other hero of whom you are told that his band was made up of several sorts of wicked artists of whom he made several uses according as he perceived which way every man's particular talent lay this statesman thomas dunn was his name drew up for the use of his comrades a stringent and stately code and he was wont to deliver an address to all novices concerning the art and mystery of robbing upon the highway under auspices so brilliant thievery could not but flourish and when the Stuarts sat upon the throne it was already lifted above the level of questioning experiment every art is shaped by its material and with variations of its material it must perforce vary if the skill of the cut-purse compelled the invention of the pocket it is certain that the rare difficulties of the pocket created the miraculous skill of those crafty fingers which were destined to empty it and as increased obstacles are perfection's best incentive a finer cunning grew out of the fresh precaution history does not tell us who it was that discovered this new continent of roguery those there are who give credit to the valiant mole cut-purse but though the roaring girl had wit to conceive a thousand strange enterprises she had not the hand to carry them out and the first pickpocket must needs have been a man of action. Moreover, her name suggests the more ancient practice, and it is wider to yield the credit to Simon Fletcher, whose praises are chanted by the early historians. Now Simon, says his biographer, was looked upon to be the greatest artist of his age by all his contemporaries. The son of a baker in Rosemary Lane, he early deserted his father's oven for a life of adventure, and he claims to have been the first collector who stealing the money yet left the case the new method was incomparably more subtle than the old it afforded an opportunity of a hitherto unimagined delicacy the wielders of the scissors were aghast at a skill which put their own clumsiness to shame and which to a previous generation would have seemed the wildest fantasy yet so strong is habit that even when picking of pockets was a recognised industry The superfluous scissors still survived, and many a rogue has hanged upon the tree because he attempted, with a vulgar implement, such feats as his unaided forks had far more easily accomplished. But despite the innovation of Simon Fletcher, the highway was the glory of Elizabeth, the still greater glory of the Stuarts. The Lacedaemonians were the only people, said Horace Walpole, except the English, who seemed to have put robbery on a right foot and the English of the seventeenth century need fear the rivalry of no Lacedaemonian. They were, indeed, the most valiant and graceful robbers that the world has ever known. The civil war encouraged their profession, and since many of them had fought for their king, a proper hatred of Cromwell sharpened their wits. They were scholars as well as gentlemen. They tempered their sport with a merry wit. Their avarice alone surpassed their courtesy and they robbed with so perfect a regard for the proprieties that it was only the pedant and the parliamentarian who resented their interference nor did their princely manner fail of its effect upon their victims the middle of the seventeenth century was the golden age not only of the robber but of the robbed the game was played upon either side with a scrupulous respect for a potent if unwritten law neither might nor right was permitted to control the issue a gaily attired superbly mounted highwayman would hold up a coach packed with armed men and take a purse from each though a vigorous remonstrance might have carried him to tyburn but the traveller knew his place he did what was expected of him in the best of tempers who was he that he should yield in courtesy to the man in the vizard as it was monstrous for the one to discharge his pistol so the other could not resist without committing an outrage upon tradition one wonders what had been the result if some mannerless reformer had declined his assailant's invitation and drawn his sword maybe the sensitive art might have died under this sharp rebuff but none save regicides were known to resist and their resistance was never more forceful than a volley of texts thus the high toby crack swaggered it with insolent gaiety knowing no worse misery than the fear of the tree so long as he followed the rules of his craft but let a touch of brutality disgrace his method, and he appealed in vain for sympathy or indulgence. The ruffian, for instance, of whom it is grimly recorded that he added a tie-wig to his booty, neither deserved nor received the smallest consideration. Delivered to justice, he speedily met the death his vulgarity merited, and the road was taught the salutary lesson that wigs were as sacred as trinkets hallowed by association with the eighteenth century the highway fell upon decline. No doubt in its silver age, the century's beginning, many a brilliant deed was done. Something of the old policy survived, and men of spirit still went upon the pad. But the breadth of the ancient style was speedily forgotten, and by the time the first George climbed to the throne, robbery was already a sordid trade. Neither side was conscious of its noble obligation." the vulgar audacity of a bullying thief was suitably answered by the ungracious involuntary submission of the terrified traveller from end to end of england you might hear the cry of stand and deliver yet how changed the accent the beauty of gesture the deference of carriage the ready response to a legitimate demand all the qualities of a dignified art were lost for ever as its professors increased in number the note of aristocracy once dominant was silenced the meanest rogue who could hire a horse might cut a contemptible figure on bagshot heath and feel no shame at robbing a poor man once in that augustan age whose brightest ornament was captain hind it was something of a distinction to be decently plundered a century later there was none so humble but he might be asked to empty his pocket in brief the blight of democracy was upon what should have remained a refined secluded art and no wise is the decay better illustrated than in the appreciation of bunglers whose exploits were scarce worth a record. James Maclean, for instance, was the hero of his age. In a history of cowards, he would deserve the first place, and the gentleman highwayman, as he was pompously styled, enjoyed a triumph denied to many a victorious general. Lord Mountford led half-whites to do him honour on the day of his arrest. On the first Sunday which he spent in Newgate, three thousand jostled for entrance to his cell and the poor devil fainted three times at the heat caused by the throng of his admirers so long as his fate hung in the balance walpole could not take up his pen without a compliment to the man who claimed to have robbed him near hyde park yet a more pitiful rascal never showed the white feather not once was he known to take a purse with his own hand the summit of his achievement being to hold the horses heads while his accomplice spoke with the passengers a poltroon before his arrest in court he whimpered and whinnied for mercy he was carried to the cart pallid and trembling and not even his preposterous finery availed to hearten him at the gallows taxed with his timidity he attempted to excuse himself on the inadmissible plea of moral rectitude i have as much personal courage in an honourable cause he exclaimed in a passage of false dignity as any man in britain But as I knew I was committing acts of injustice, so I went to them, half loath and half consenting, and in that sense I own I am a coward indeed. The disingenuousness of this proclamation is as remarkable as its hypocrisy. Well might he brag of his courage in an honourable cause, when he knew that he could never be put to the test. But what palliation shall he find for a rogue with so little pride in his art, that he exercised it half loath, half consenting? it is not in this recreant spirit that masterpieces are achieved and MacLean had better have stayed in the far highland parish which bred him than have attempted to cut a figure in the larger world of london his famous encounter with walpole should have covered him with disgrace for it was ignoble at every point and the art was so little understood that it merely added a leaf to his crown of glory now though walpole was far too well bred to oppose the demand of an armed stranger Maclean, in defiance of his craft, discharged his pistol at an innocent head. True, he wrote a letter of apology and insisted that had the one pistol shot proved fatal, he had another in reserve for himself. But not even Walpole would have believed him had not an amiable faith given him an opportunity for the answering quip: "Can I do less than say I will be hanged if he is?" As Maclean was a coward and no thief, so also he was a snob and no gentleman. His boasted elegance was not more respectable than his art. Fine clothes are the embellishment of a true adventurer. They hang ill on the sloping shoulders of a poltroon. And Maclean, with all the ostensible weaknesses of his kind, would claim regard for the strength that he knew not. He occupied a costly apartment in St. James's Street. His morning dress was a crimson damask banjam, a silk shag waistcoat trimmed with lace, black velvet breeches, white silk stockings, and yellow Morocco slippers. But since his magnificence added no jot to his courage, it was rather mean than admirable. Indeed, his whole career was marred by the provincialism of his native manse. And he was the adored of an intelligent age. He basked a few brief weeks in the noonday sun of fashion. If distinction was not the heritage of the eighteenth century, its glory is that now and again a giant raised his head above the stature of a prevailing rectitude the art of verse was lost in rhetoric the noble prose invented by the elizabethans and refined under the stuarts was whittled away to common sense by the admirers of addison and steele swift and johnson gibbon and fielding were apparitions of strength in an amiable ineffective age they emerged sudden from the impeccable greyness to which they afforded an heroic contrast. So while the highway drifted, drifted to a vulgar incompetence, the craft was illumined by many a flash of unexpected genius. The brilliant achievements of Jonathan Wilde and of Jack Shepherd might have relieved the gloom of the darkest era, and their separate masterpieces make some atonement for the environing cowardice and stupidity above all the eighteenth century was newgate's golden age now for the first time and the last were the rules and customs of the jug perfectly understood if jonathan the great was unrivalled in the art of clapping his enemies into prison if jack the slipstring was supreme in the rarer art of getting himself out even the meanest criminal of his time knew what was expected of him so long as he wandered within the walled yard, or listened to the ministrations of the stuff besmirched ordinary. He might show a lamentable lack of cleverness in carrying off his booty. He might prove a too-easy victim to the wiles of the thief-catcher, but he never fell short of courage when asked to sustain the consequences of his crime. Newgate, compared by one eminent author to a university, by another to a ship, was a republic whose liberty extended only as far as its iron door. While there was no liberty without, there was licence within, and if the culprit, who paid for the smallest indiscretion with his neck, understood the etiquette of the place, he spent his last weeks in an orgy of rollicking lawlessness. He drank, he ate, he diced, he received his friends, or chaffed the ordinary. He attempted, through the well paid cunning of the clerk, to bribe the jury. And even when artifice had failed, he went to Tyburn like a man. If he knew not how to live, at least he would show a resentful world how to die. "'In no country,' wrote Sir T. Smith, a distinguished lawyer of the time, "'do malefactors go to execution more intrepidly than in England. And assuredly, buoyed up by custom and the approval of their fellows, Wilde's victims made a brave show at the gallows, nor was their bravery the result of a common callousness. They understood at once the humour and the delicacy of the situation. Though hitherto they had chaffed the ordinary, they now listened to his exhortation with at least a semblance of respect, and though their last night upon earth might have been devoted to a joyous company, they did not withhold their ear from the bellman's chant. As twelve o'clock approached, their last midnight upon earth, they would interrupt the most spirited discourse, they would check the tour of the mellowest bottle to listen to the solemn doggerel. "'All you that in the condemned hole do lie,' groaned the bellman of St. Sepulchre's in his duskiest voice, and they who held revel in the condemned hole prayed silence of their friends for the familiar cadences. "'All you that in the condemned hole do lie, prepare you, for to-morrow you shall die. Watch all and pray.' THE HOUR IS DRAWING NEAR, THAT YOU BEFORE THE ALMIGHTY MUST APPEAR. EXAMINE WELL YOURSELVES, IN TIME REPENT, THAT YOU MAY NOT to ETERNAL FLAMES BE SENT. AND WHEN ST. PALCA'S BELL TOMORROW TOLLS, THE LORD ABOVE HAVE MERCY ON YOUR SOULS. PAST TWELVE O'CLOCK. EVEN IF THIS WARNING STRUCK A MOMENTARY TERROR INTO THEIR OFFENDING SOULS, THEY WERE UP BETIMES IN THE MORNING eager to pay their final debt. Their journey from Newgate to Tyburn was a triumph, and their vanity was unabashed at the droning menaces of the ordinary. At one point a chorus of maidens cast wreaths upon their way, or pinned nosegays in their coats, that they might not face the executioner unadorned. At the crown tavern they quaffed their last glass of ale, and told the landlord with many a leer and smirk that they would pay him on their way back though gravity was asked, it was not always given. But in the eighteenth century courage was seldom wanting. To the common citizen a violent death was, and is, the worst of horrors. To the ancient highwayman it was the odd trick lost in the game of life, and the highwayman endured the rope as the practised gambler loses his estate, without plenching. One there was who felt his leg tremble in his own despite, wherefore he stamped it upon the ground so violently that in other circumstances he would have roared with pain, and he left the world without a tremor. In this spirit Cranmer burnt his recreant right hand, and in either case the glamour of a unique occasion was a stimulus to courage. But not even this brilliant treatment of accessories availed to save the highway from disrepute. Indeed, it had become the profitless pursuit of braggarts and loafers, long before the abolition of the stage-coach destroyed its opportunity. In the meantime, however, the pickpocket was master of his trade. His strategy was perfect, his sleight of hand as delicate as long lithe fingers and nimble brains could make it. He had discarded for ever those clumsy instruments whose use had barred the progress of the primitives. The breast-pocket behind the tightest buttoned coat presented no difficulty to his love of research, and he would penetrate the stoutest frieze or the lightest satin as easily as Jack Shepherd made a hole through Newgate. His trick of robbery was so simple and yet so successful that ever since it has remained a tradition. The collision, the victim's murmured apology, the hasty scuffle, the booty handed to the adacon who is out of sight before the hue and cry can be raised. Such was the policy advocated two hundred years ago. Such is the policy pursued to-day by the few artists that remain. Throughout the eighteenth century the art of cliffhaking held its own, though its reputation paled in the glamour of the highway. It culminated in George Barrington, whose vivid genius persuaded him to work alone and to carry off his own booty. It still flourished, in the Silver Age, when the incomparable Haggart performed his prodigies of skill. Even in our own prosaic time some flashes of the ancient glory have been seen. Now and again circumstances have driven it into eclipse. When the facile sentiment of the early Victorian era poised the tear of sympathy upon every trembling eyelid, the most obdurate was forced to provide himself with a silk handkerchief of equal size and value. Now a wipe is the easiest booty in the world, and the artful dodger might grow rich without the exercise of the smallest skill. But wipes dwindled with dwindling sensibility, and once more the pickpocket was forced upon cleverness or extinction. At the same time, the more truculent trade of housebreaking was winning a lesser triumph of its own. Never, save in the hands of one or two distinguished practitioners, has this clumsy, brutal pursuit taken on the refinement of an art. Essentially modern, it has generally been pursued in the meanest spirit of gain. Deacon Brodie clung to it as a diversion, but he was an amateur, without a clear understanding of his craft's possibilities. The sole monarch of housebreakers was Charles Peace. At a single stride he surpassed his predecessors, nor has the greatest of his imitators been worthy to hand on the candle which he left at the gallows for the rest there is small distinction in breaking windows wielding crowbars and battering the brains of defenceless old gentlemen and it is to such miserable tricks as this that he who two centuries since rode abroad in all the glory of the high toby splice descends in these days of avarice and stupidity the legislators who decreed that henceforth the rope should be reserved for the ultimate crime of murder were inspired with a proper sense of humour and proportion. It would be ignoble to dignify that ugly enterprise of to-day, the cracking of suburban cribs, with the same punishment which was meted out to Claude Duval and the immortal switcher. Better for the churl, the disgrace of Portland, than the chance of heroism and respect given at the tree and where are the heroes whose art was as glorious as their intrepidity one and all they have climbed the ascent of tyburn one and all they have leapt resplendent from the cart the world which was the joyous playground of highwaymen and pickpockets is now the arcadia of swindlers the man who once went forth to meet his equal on the road now plunders the defenceless widow or the foolish clergyman from the security of an office He has changed Black Bess for a broom, his pistol for a cigar. A sleek chimney-pot sits upon the head, which once carried a jaunty hat, three-cornered. Spats have replaced the tops of ancient times, and a heavy fur coat advertises at once the wealth and inaction of the modern brigand. No longer does he roam the heaths of Hounslow or Bagshot. No longer does he track the grazier to a country fair. Fearful of an encounter, he chooses for the fields of his enterprise the byways of the city and the advertisement columns of the smugly Christian press. He steals without risking his skin or losing his respectability. The suburb wherein he brings up a blameless, flat-footed family regards him as its most renowned benefactor. He is generally a pillar, or a buttress, of the church, and oftentimes a mayor with his ill-gotten wealth he promotes charities and endows schools his portrait is painted by a second-rate academician and hangs until disaster overtakes him in the town hall of his adopted borough how much worse is he than the high tobycracks of old they were as brave as lions he is a very louse for timidity his conduct is meaner than the conduct of the most ruffianly burglar that ever worked a centre bit of art he has not the remotest inkling. Though his greed is bounded by the bank of England, he understands not the elegancies of life. He cares not how he plumps his purse so long as it be full, and if he were capable of conceiving a grand effect he would willingly surrender it for a pocketed half-crown. This side of the Channel, in brief, romance and the picturesque are dead, and in France, the last refuge of crime, there are already signs of decay. The Abbe Bruno caught a whiff of style and invention from the past. That other Abbe, Roslo was his name, shone forth a pure creator. He owed his prowess to the example of none. But in Paris crime is too often passionnel, and a crime passionnel is a crime with a purpose, which like the novel with a purpose, is conceived by a dullard and carried out for the gratification of the middle class to whitewash the scoundrel is to put upon him the heaviest dishonour a dishonour comparable only to the monstrously illogical treatment of the condemned when once a hero has forfeited his right to comfort and freedom when he is deemed no longer fit to live upon the earth the prison chaplain encouraging him to a final act of hypocrisy gives him a free pass so to say into another and more exclusive world so too the moralist would test the thief by his own narrow standard forgetting that all professions are not restrained by the same code the road has its ordinances as well as the lecture-room and if the thief is commonly a bad moralist it is certain that no moralist was ever a great thief why then detract from a man's legitimate glory is it not wiser to respect that deep intuition of oneness which coleridge says is At the bottom of our faults as well as our virtues? To recognise that a fault in an honest man is a virtue in a scoundrel? After all, he is eminent who, in obedience to his talent, does prodigies of valour unrivalled by his fellows, and none has so many opportunities of various eminence as the scoundrel. The qualities which may profitably be applied to a cross-life are uncommon and innumerable. It's not given to all men to be light-brained light-limbed light-fingered a courage which shall face an enemy under the starlight or beneath the shadow of a wall which shall track its prey to a well-defended lair is far rarer than a law-abiding cowardice the recklessness that risks all for a present advantage is called genius if a victorious general urge it to success nor can you deny to the intrepid highwayman whose sudden resolution triumphs at an instant of peril, the possession of an admirable gift. But all heroes have not proved themselves excellent at all points. This one has been distinguished for the courtly manner of his attack, that other for a prescience which discovers booty behind a coach-door, or within the pocket of a buttoned coat. If Cartouche was a master of strategy, Barrington was unmatched in another branch, and each may claim the credit due to a particular eminence. It is only thus that you may measure conflicting talents, as it were unfair to judge a poet by a brief experiment in prose, so it would be monstrous to cheapen the accomplishments of a pickpocket because he bungled at the concealment of his gains.